According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah once again. This morning we come to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. 34 verses to cover between now and our closing prayer. We'll see how it goes. Jeremiah chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So this is the second of the, the preeminent messages that are recorded for us. Second in the order that they're written, not always the order that they happen. Uh, I don't believe I've mentioned yet how scrambled these chapters are. And it would be useful if you could find a, a Bible knowledge commentary or some of the other resources that are available. I ought to put a handout together and uh, send it to you folks so you can kind of keep a scorecard on the various chapters when we're dealing with some of the early stuff or dealing with some of the later stuff. But here is a message that he is to deliver, not inside the temple, but in the gate. In the gate, standing in the door. In other words, blocking everybody's way. People trying to come, people trying to go, and people that will come and go without thinking about it as far as what the reality is of their temple life and why their temple life externally seems great, but internally is filthy. And the rebuke that comes by God for people that try to live the way they want to live and then plaster it over with some religiosity as if somehow that makes a difference. All right, and so uh, it may be that this chapter becomes kind of convicting for uh, for a lot of folks. It's a trend that transcends dispensations. It applies today. There are believers that have external shows, uh, but inwardly their heart is far from the Lord. And so we want to understand this chapter for what it's saying. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, to bless our time together, to supervise our equipment and uh, everything else that takes place here today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is ours to assemble together. We thank you for this grace provision, for the faithfulness of your grace provision, Father. The uh, lights are on, the doors are open, the air conditioning is running, the bills are paid, and you are faithful. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We call upon your faithfulness once again and the faithful ministry of God the Holy Spirit who leads us in all things, even the deep things of God. Open the eyes of our understanding today. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah stood at the gate of the temple for his second public message. We can kind of take verses, or chapters 1 through 6 or 2 through 6 as a unit. We have his calling there in chapter 1, remember, as a youth. Uh, I don't think, though, that we can safely say he is still a youth in the message that he's delivering here in chapter 7, although there is considerable debate about how late this comes. I think uh, as we see the uh, nature of the destruction and the, the point by which they have passed, the point of no return, I suspect this chapter comes later. I suspect this chapter comes after the death of Josiah, in which case we're dealing with the final wicked kings of Judah between 609 and 586 B.C. and some of the issues that happen there. Let me just read the first few verses and then we'll take note of some things. Uh, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. <laughs> All right? For you, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. So we'll stop the context there because there appears to be an if message. And this if message has to be legitimate or God's a liar. That if they repent, if they amend their ways and their deeds, different aspects, we'll have to discuss that. As uh, if they amend their ways and their deeds, then he will relent of the calamity that has been foretold. All right. Now the problem is, of course, is God has already foretold the calamity and told them that there's no avoiding it. And, and so is he a liar then for saying, if you amend your ways, I will relent? Having already said, I'm not going to relent. All right. No, both are absolutely true because God is not a liar that if they do amend their ways, he will relent. But in his foreknowledge, of course, he knows they will not amend their ways or their deeds, and they are headed for destruction when Nebuchadnezzar brings the uh, southern kingdom to an end. I do find it interesting here, though, that we have these if statements. Amend your ways and your deeds. Notice, they are not the same thing. <laughs> All right? And I think there, happen, there tends to be an over-attention focused on the deeds. Right? People turn to... Galatians 5, like we're dealing with this morning, and, and they want to look at those lists. They want to see the deeds of the flesh, which are evident. There's a list of things there. And they want to see the fruit of the Spirit, and there's a list of things there. And, and folks are quick to look at lists of things and say, all right, I'm going to try to do as many of these as I can. I'm going to try to stay away from as many of these as I can. And like the Ten Commandments, I've never killed anybody, so I'm, I'm good there. Um, you know, and, and they, they focus on the deeds, failing to identify the fact that the ways precede the deeds, all right? And it's the ways, the routes, the course of life, the mindset. As God says, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. And so it's the ways that have to be amended first. The, the mindsets we get into, the, the uh, mode of thinking that we surrender to, that precedes our actions. Both have to be amended. And I hope that we can identify that as well. So both verse 3 and verse 5 speak to this, that ways and deeds are not the same thing. And if we have an over-attention on the deeds, then I think we are neglecting or we're ignoring the significance of the ways. And really, the Bible addresses ways more than it addresses deeds when it comes right down to it. I think it helps us from becoming legalists in terms of just tracking people and the stuff they're doing. We, we teach the Word of God and we let the Word of God transform thinking. And transformed thinking creates a whole new way, a whole new outlook whereby the new man in Christ has a whole way of operating. That is the new man in Christ. The newness of life, it's called. That, we, uh, that as Jesus Christ was raised from the glory to the glory of God, so we too might now walk in the newness of life. That's the new way that we ought to be pursuing. 
as opposed to the the deeds. And I think that's uh, fairly clear in the context of what this uh, passage is dealing with here. How about the mindless repetition? What does mindless repetition do for you? Well, mindless repetition never changes reality. You can say it over, over, and over again. It doesn't make it true. All right, politicians like doing this. People running for office like doing this. They say something over and over and over and over again so that if you hear it enough times, you start to think that it's true. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. All right, it's almost like they're sticking their fingers in their ears and going, nah, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. It's almost like if they repeat it enough, it becomes a mantra. It almost becomes a, a formula of an incantation. Just say it three times and it makes it happen. Well, there may be pagan beliefs in terms of that, but certainly not biblical beliefs. We see it in verse 4, comes back again in verse 10. Uh, I haven't reached that far. Why don't I stop the reading in verse 7? Let's look, look, let's look at a few more of these. Verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You know, trust, well, doesn't that count? Look at that, I have faith. I'm trusting. Yeah, but you're trusting in a lie. It doesn't count. That doesn't matter for anything. The value of faith is not in the activity of faith, it's in the object of faith. Trust in Christ, you have an infinite object there unto eternal life. Trust in anything else, you're going to hell. For example, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house? Okay? You know, are you out there on Saturday night in the honky-tonks and chasing women and catching some and doing all this other stuff? And then you think, well, I'm going to go to church Sunday morning and that'll make up for it all? What are you doing? Then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. All right, and so this repetition, this house called by my name and say, we are delivered. We are delivered. Now, Mindless rep- repetition does not change reality. The reality is you're still, uh, you're a phony. You're living one way and trying to put on a show. And God sees right through that. Also notice, this is the, the rhetorical question, okay? Rhetorical questions need no answers because they answer themselves. The answers are self-evident. They're obvious for everyone that's not delusional to deny it. Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Does that sound familiar? Jesus quotes this. This is the verse that makes him go berserk near the end of his ministry, in the week in which he's betrayed. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Is this your lair? Is this your hideout? Is this your base, right? You're like a little kid on the playground and you can run around, you can tag whatever, and then just when you're about to be tagged, you jump on this thing and you call base. Okay? Base, can't tag me now. You know, and you notice with some of these jerks that base changes from time to time throughout the game. Like, well, that's not base. Base was over there. Well, now base is here. Okay? Trying to claim the temple is base. All right? It's the hideout. It's the lair. The cops can't find me here. They can't catch me here. This is my, this is my lair. This is my den. This is a den of robbers, our secret base, as if that's going to rescue me from living the, the way I want to live the rest of the week, the rest of my life in, uh, in those things. The robber's den tragedy. 
motivates Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. All right, and you can turn to Matthew 21, and it won't take us long, we can look at this here. I think you're familiar with it. Matthew 21, and what a, what a pack of thieves, right? Den of robbers, you know? These guys, they were using uh, the, the sacrificial system. They were using the temple. They were, they were making money hand over fist in different ways, exchanging foreign coins for the acceptable temple coins, uh, uh, validating the uh, appropriateness of the, you know, the USDA grade A uh, sacrifice uh, quality of the sacrificial animals and the things there. And of course, you don't get that stamp of USDA grade A approval without paying the fees that, uh, that these guys are charging. Matthew 21, 13, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling the doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. First, of that, first half of that verse comes from Isaiah, the second half from Jeremiah. <laughs> How about that? You think it's useful to do a Isaiah and Jeremiah tandem from time to time? I think this is, uh, study is going to be a, a blessing for our congregation in many, many ways. But clearly, the Father's worship is significant to the Father. You know, when he's speaking to that woman at the well in John chapter 4, he talks about neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Then what does he say? For such are those that the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The seeking of worshipers is a paterological function. God the Father himself does that. He doesn't delegate that to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who does that in John chapter 4. We, we need to learn from the things that the Father doesn't delegate to the Son or the Holy Spirit. The things the Father himself reserves for his own paterological function. See, and worship is is huge. That's why Jesus, whose only whose sole motivation was the glory of the Father, he sees this worship just bastardized in the in the the money changers and the things that were happening there. And Jeremiah hits them hard. They've turned it into a den of robbers. And then there's Shiloh. We have Shiloh here in verses twelve through fifteen. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh. You think you have safety here? Take a, take a tour, all right? Get one of those Holy Land tours. Oh, they're already in the Holy Land. He says, go to Shiloh, all right? Which is north of where they are, and the armies are coming from the north, and it might be a fast trip. He says, go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. This gets significant because this deals with uh, Jeremiah's own family tree. This deals with a particular branch of the priesthood, Eli and his descendants, a particular segment of that priesthood uh, that descends through the, through the years down to the priests of Anathoth, down to Jeremiah himself. A line of priests that's banned from ever serving in the priesthood ever again. And uh, it all happened at Shiloh. And because you have done these things, verse 13 declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called to you, but you did not answer. Do you see? God goes the extra mile. You know, God is the one that got up early this morning to make sure we had doctrine. All right? And some of us think, well, you know, it's kind of early. 
You know, are we willing to get up early? God says he got up early. Anyway, I'm, I'm staring at the pulpit. I'm not looking at anybody at all. <laughs> Awkward sip of coffee. Yeah, all right. Because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. You should have learned. Shiloh was in Ephraim territory. What happened to them? And so we have the doctrine of Shiloh, which, by the way, if we wanted to stop and take three weeks to teach the doctrine of Shiloh, we could do that, but that's not our format this hour. Shiloh teaches two important principles, teaches two important principles, although that takes into a lot of text criticism and issues of Hebrew spelling and some manuscript uh, corruption, because the Shiloh in Genesis 49 may be spelled differently from the Shiloh here. And uh, there is great debate over the significance of Shiloh in the prophecy of Judah. Nevertheless, Shiloh teaches two important principles, however you spell it. There is the Shiloh in which the temple, in which the uh, ark was captured. And if you want to go back to 1 Samuel 4, you can see it. The ark was captured, the Philistines. In fact, it's, it's worth our time. Shiloh's defeat by the Philistines and the capture of the ark. And, and the insanity whereby they thought, hey, we can't lose if we let the ark go in front of us to battle. They, they tried to follow a, an artificial mechanism that seemed to work for Joshua, so let's try it. Okay? And they lost. And not only did they lose, they lost the ark itself. It was captured and taken, uh, taken to uh, one of the Philistine cities. And that leads to another story that I love to read about and makes me laugh every time. First Samuel 4, though, without getting too lost in this, 1 Samuel 4, verses 10 and 11. And uh, so here's where they're just they're trying to figure things out. And um, here's uh, Ebenezer. They come out of the camp beside Ebenezer. Now that, that doctrine right there, the doctrine of Ebenezer should have prompted their repentance so they wouldn't have to suffer this defeat at Shiloh, but they didn't. And uh, they, they concluded, the Lord has defeated us before the Philistines in verse 3. Here's an idea. Let's uh, not inquire of the Lord and repent and ask Him what we should do. Let's just come up with a different idea and try to solve it ourselves. Let's, uh, let's take the ark out of Shiloh and uh, let's bring it with us into battle. And the ark will win, right? And the ark can come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. See, we don't want Yahweh to deliver us from the power of our enemies because then we have to submit to Yahweh and we have to obey Yahweh and we have to do what Yahweh tells us to do. But we can carry the ark around and then we're in charge. We carry the ark, right? That's why people like tape recorders instead of live pastors. Because the tape recorder, you can push play and stop and rewind and eject and, and you have sovereignty as opposed to a live pastor in face-to-face ministry of a local church when the shepherd's the one with the authority in the face-to-face uh, situation. Anyway, their lucky charm didn't work. So they sent to Shiloh and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the, who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And uh, they're all excited. Now, 
<laughs> interestingly enough, uh, they're not supposed to go and approach the ark except on the, the Day of Atonement, and the high priest has to do all these rituals. They didn't do any of this. They just went and grabbed the ark and said, hey, let's take it into battle. And a great shout. And the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, and they said, what does the noise of this great shout mean in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood the ark had come into the camp, and then they were afraid because they said, Elohim has come into the camp. They had a greater fear of Elohim than Israel had a, a fear of Yahweh. Elohim has come into the camp, and they said, woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. And uh, we heard what happened to the Egyptians and, and all the plagues and all that. And so this is when they have their stand like man or die kind of moment, and the Philistines decided to take courage and stand like a man. And they went out to the, and they fought, and they won. All right, the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. All right, they died. And this is uh, the issue here. And anyway, then there's a remnant that comes, and Eli hears the news, and he's sitting there, and he's, gonna, he's going to uh, fall off his uh, horse. Verse 18, when uh, the mention of the ark of God, he fell with the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. All right, anyway, Phineas's wife was pregnant, and this is the birth of Ichabod. Okay, no glory. Anyway, um, a commentary on this comes in Psalm 78 which I'll grab on my way back to Jeremiah now. Psalm 78 and verse 60. Wow, again, larger context. Uh, rebellion against the Most High God, not keeping His testimony, provoking Him with her high places, arousing His jealousy with her graven images. When God heard, He was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Now the record in First Samuel doesn't quite go into all that detail, but the traditions are, and we never see Shiloh again after that chapter, that the, the follow-up was after they took the uh, ark and they captured the ark and took it back to their city, Ashdod I think it was, they put it in the temple of, uh, of Dagon, uh, that they then returned and they plundered Shiloh. They, the, the place was, was devastated. And I think verse 60 bears that out. He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Now eventually they'll get the ark back. In fact, the Philistines are cursed and they, they're, they're very happy to return the ark and David will be instrumental uh, in, in some of that. But anyway, there's uh, an issue there. But in addition to that principle, so there's the first of our Shiloh principles. The first of the Shiloh principle is uh, where God dwells is significant, but it's not your get-out-of-jail-free card and live however you want to live. It is significant because it is the place of His glory, the place of His holiness, and you and I better, that is humanity better, uh, have the appropriate reverence in the, in the face of, of God's holiness, whether it's Shiloh or the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem or wherever it might be. How about within each one of us since we're the temple of God? How about having a church age application? Shiloh ought to teach us the significance of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit that is our bodies. And uh, if we don't learn the Shiloh lesson, I think uh, we could be in for some, some Philistine judgment. But then there's a second blessing if you ever want to study Shiloh. Not just Shiloh's uh, destruction, but also Shiloh's promise. 
The very first reference of Shiloh in all the Bible comes in Genesis 49, and it comes as a prophecy for Judah. And when you study the Abrahamic covenant and you study how it's reconfirmed to Isaac and it's re-reconfirmed to Jacob, you know that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is Israel. Jacob is renamed Israel. And so Yahweh Elohim becomes the Lord God of Israel. He has to be the God of Israel because he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, and there we have it. Now, in the the descendants of Israel are 12 tribes. They're all co-equal. They all have every aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that every other one has. There is no tribe that has more of the Abrahamic covenant than any other tribe. All right? But Judah is pinpointed, and this prophecy comes in Jeremiah 40, uh, in Genesis 49, that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. And there's a significance there to that name. It's a messianic promise. The one to whom it belongs. The one to whom it is due. All right? And so Shiloh speaks of the promise of the coming Messiah, who will not only be a redeemer and a deliverer, but also the one who holds the scepter. All right? So Judah, he doesn't have any more of the Abrahamic covenant, but within the Abrahamic covenant, it has the sovereignty over the other tribes. The Messiah will be born from Judah. Later on, we're told it's the line of David, a very obscure branch of Judah from a clan that was too small to even be counted as a clan. All right, and from a family that was had a lot of sons, but uh, a family within that clan that was so small it wasn't even registered among the clans of Judah. See, and then picking the youngest of all those sons anyway. You talk about an obscure king picking out David was was a, a matchless act of grace on on the Lord's part. So Shiloh's promise when Jesus establishes the kingdom, and you have Genesis forty nine ten and Ezekiel twenty one twenty seven by the way, which also speaks to. I think, the grammatical construction that connects Shiloh to Jesus. That is the one to whom it does belong. The one to whom it is due. Alright? God has a plan and that plan is centered on Jesus Christ. It's not centered on Satan. It's not centered on us. Satan can issue his I wills and, and vow to sit on a seat. And God says, that is not, you are not the one to whom that seat belongs. Alright? And we do the same thing. We, we pronounce our I wills and God says, you are not the one to whom that glory belongs. The glory belongs to Jesus Christ. So there's a whole realm of doctrine there that we don't have time to get into today. Let's look at verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20. Here is God commanding Jeremiah to quit going to prayer meeting. All right. And has God ever commanded you to do that? Nah, me either. All right. As for you, do not pray for this people. Stop praying for this people. And your intercessory prayer ministry for this people. That's why I say I think at this point they've crossed the line. That uh, they will not repent. That their judgment is, uh, is now irrevocable. Do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with, them, with me. For I do not hear you. That's not because God doesn't love Jeremiah or God doesn't love them. It's because he's not going to listen to any more of those prayers on behalf of Judah. He's heard everything there is to hear. There's nothing left to hear except their repentance, and that's not happening. He says, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Look what they're doing. They are so steeped in their idolatry, they've turned it into a family business. 
They are so steeped in idolatry. Notice, the children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Everybody is all involved in this, from the little kids to the wives to the dads. It's a, it's a home business at this point, and the whole family is taking part in the idolatry. These cakes for the queen of heaven. All right? And uh, study those sometime and find out what these are about. Okay? Supposedly aphrodisiac type properties, and supposedly they were, you know, cookie cutter shaped into, into pornography and, and involved in, in uh, the eating of these things along with the, the promiscuity of, of that. For they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. It's all out of spite. It's all, it's all in the face of the God who said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And here they're doing it. They're doing it physically, they're doing it spiritually. And they're spiting his face. Do you spite? Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Who are they really sinning against? You know, the fornication sins are against God, but they're also against their own bodies. They reap destruction in their flesh for the fornication sins to their own shame. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath, ah, that's two different things, will be poured out on this place. On this place. You mean the geography suffers? The land is defiled? Yes, it is. Yes, it does. On this place. On man and on beast. What do the animals do? Animals are under human sovereignty. And when humanity defiles themselves and defiles their land, the the dominion of man likewise suffers. On uh, the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. God's wrath is on the environment. If you want to be a biblical environmentalist, it requires godliness in the sight of God. It requires diligence, obedience before the Word of God. Uh, you, you can be the biggest environmentalist on the planet by obeying Scripture as a steward of God's earth and watch God's blessing upon a land as a consequence of believers that are salt and light in their community. And, and there you have it. Of course, try explaining that to Greenpeace, all right? That's not an easy sell for them as they don't have the capacity to identify things of truth. Jeremiah is banned from intercessory prayer. Now, this is this is remarkable. You know, this is a, a thou shalt not pray for these people kind of message. That's hard. You know, tell a tell a prophet not to pray for his people. Tell a pastor not to pray for his flock. Tell a parent not to pray for his child. Say, that's hard to do. I find it interesting. The Lord has to repeatedly issue this command to Jeremiah. Likely because I think Jeremiah kept defying it. Uh, you know, why does he tell him this in chapter 7? Well, guess what? He's going to tell him again, again in chapter 11. Well, what happened in the meantime between chapter 7 and chapter 11? I, I think Jeremiah got busy praying again for, for Judah. And uh, God says, quit praying for my people. And then Jeremiah started praying again. Maybe he quit for a week or quit for a month or whatever. And then he started praying again. And God had to tell him a second time. In chapter 11 and verse 14, tells him a second time. He says, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. He says, Stop doing it. I'm not going to listen. And again in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. 
The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Yeah, uh, gruesome in 586 B.C. The Lord had to repeatedly issue this command, I believe, likely, because Jeremiah defied the Lord and kept praying for his people anyway. Read between the lines a little bit and you see some things. Perhaps we have a clue here in Jeremiah 18 and verse 20. Well, verses 19 and 20. Interestingly enough, they, uh, they're they going to attack Jeremiah. In verse 18, then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Now, he's already been told three times not to pray for him. And now they've got a conspiracy to attack him. So what would you do? Well, you know, leave town and quit being a prophet and go retire somewhere. Get on a boat for Tarshish. Try that. You know, that worked for Jonah. Um, no. Instead, he prays for these people. He was told three times not to pray for. So you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so um, in verse 19, do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away your wrath from them. And this is looking back to previous occasions. I think previous occasions when he was told, don't pray for these people. But he stood and interceded anyway. It's like with Moses when God told Moses, stand back, I'm going to blast these people. And Moses says, no, Lord, you can't do that. They're your people. They're called by your name. I believe Jeremiah faced a very similar test here in this regard. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf. I'm not sure I could have thought of anything, but he did. He did. So as to turn away your wrath from them, therefore give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword. Let their wives, this is the Lord now speaking, uh, let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death. Their young men struck down by the sword in battle. Anyway, so there's a break there between 20 and 21 between what Jeremiah says and what the Lord, how the Lord answers. All right, we'll be there before you know it, 11 weeks from now. Banned from this intercessory prayer ministry. It is interesting, in the Old Testament, certain men of faith had powerful effects in their intercessory prayer. It is extraordinary. We're going to notice in chapter 15, about eight weeks from now, that Moses and Samuel in particular were heroes of prayer, powerful men of prayer that interceded for their nation. And even if the two of them would be back in Israel and if they were to join Jeremiah, it wouldn't help in, uh, in saving the city. Jeremiah 15.1, The Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Let them go. One of the hardest things to do, you know, with a child or a church member, anyone that's know, that knows the truth and they're insistent upon their will be done. What can you do? You can't force them to make the right choices. Do you let them go? God does. In His grace, but He also brings them back. There's a grace provision there too. But I think this reference here to Moses and Samuel, you talk about a hall of fame, you know, Man, 
Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with his people. So there's a tandem there of two great prayer warriors, prophets to the nation of Israel, prophets, Jewish prophets to the nation of Israel that were tremendous prayer intercessors in their day and age. And yet, the two of them couldn't save Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Similar emphasis that's made in Ezekiel 14. Now we go to Ezekiel, we're talking about a, a prophet who is now in Babylon living in the captivity. And the examples he's given have more of a Gentile focus than a Jewish focus. Nevertheless, so it's not Moses and Samuel. You'll notice, though, a similar concept. Ezekiel 14, 14. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst. Here's a hall of fame for you. Even if these three men, and think about Noah and Job were both Gentiles, and Daniel, even though he was Jewish, ministered to Gentile kings. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. You know, ten righteous could have saved Sodom. Three righteous, even if it was these three, would not have saved Jerusalem. Even one righteous. Jeremiah had to walk through and find one righteous guy and couldn't do it. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, down to verse 20 of the same chapter, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. I'm starting to suspect that Ham, Shem, and Japheth, uh, they they weren't uh, the reason why God delivered them through the flood. But it was Noah. Noah delivered himself, and he delivered his three sons, and he delivered his three uh, daughters-in-law through the flood. The New Testament teaches that this is a privilege we have in the body of Christ. The New Testament teaches that principle is applicable to every believer in the body of Christ. James 5.16, that the fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That every example you have in the Old Testament, bring it into the New Testament and realize that our proximity to the Father is so much closer because we are in Christ. Christ is at the Father's right hand. We are in Christ. When we ask by faith, what is it that we do not receive? Right? Elijah was a man with a spirit like ours and he prayed and it stopped raining for three years. Is that what your prayer life is like? And then he prayed again and it started raining. All right? Are we willing to pray in the plan of God, not only in agreement with the divine discipline upon our nation, but also staying faithful throughout that time for when it comes time to put the rain back on again. He had three years to endure that uh, divine discipline upon his land. But he stayed faithful and he stayed in prayer. Anyway, the pattern in James 5.16 is that that's how our prayer life is supposed to be like. You and I together in the body of Christ, in the local church, under the leadership of our elders there in James chapter 5. I find that to be extraordinary as well. All right, goodness. How fast does the time go on Sunday mornings? James 5, let me just grab this really quickly. Because in a lot of cases, I think people abuse James 5, particularly when it comes to sickness and healing and different things. It's not a uh, medical chapter, it's a prayer chapter, and it just happens to include a health test, a health test that's actually the consequences of a sin issue. So we're confessing our sins to one another. 
different aspects here. The um, endurance. Verse 7 says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. We are watching and waiting. We're, we're studying this in Proverbs right now. That we are, we are listening, Shamer, and we are, uh, uh, and we are keeping, Shamer. That's the Proverbs 8 application. All right? So until the coming of the Lord, we are dispensationally minded. We're listening day by day for that trumpet. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. There are seasons, there's a schedule, there's a timetable. And we in our humanity can't speed things up. All we can do is wait upon the Lord and what He's going to bring about in His good pleasure. You too then be patient, strengthening your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. We don't just sit around doing nothing. While we're waiting for the fulfillment of these things, we're strengthening our hearts. We're fervent in our prayers. We're like-minded with God who is delaying. And do not complain, brethren, against one another. Worst thing we can do is start biting and chewing and devouring. Because the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That's why it's useful to study Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these prophets. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Anyway, getting down to verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church. You're not alone in this. We have a church body. Come and pray. Neat thing is, you come to prayer meeting, get to pray with your pastor. Come and pray. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Notice, though, um, call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. See, the, the healing value of oils, essential oils. There's, you know, don't ignore the medical procedures, but in addition to the medical procedures, then take it in as a matter of prayer. Because the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven from him. See, because the sickness could be a medical issue, the sickness could be a sin issue. Your pharmacy won't give you a pill for that, all right? But prayer and repentance in the Word of God will cleanse you from such unrighteousness. So therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. Now notice, a nature like ours, but none of the divine assets we have as believers in the church age. So if he could do it in his stewardship, think of what we can do in our stewardship. And so that's the example there for our prayers. Verses 21 through 26. Ritual is not reality. And missing that point forsakes the blessings of both. Missing that point forsakes the blessings of both. They completely missed the point when it came to the ritual they were given in Mosaic Law. Everything they were given to do, from their diet to their calendar, to uh, the work, to the non-work, to the Sabbath rest, to everything they were given to do, was uh, a tutor to lead them to Christ. It was a principle, the shadow doctrine, to lead them to the reality that is the coming of their Messiah. And they missed the point as a nation you know, obviously the remnants, and there were a few here and there. But as a nation, their Christ came and they crucified him. Ritual is not reality, and missing that point forsakes the blessings of both. You, uh, you lose sight of the reality, and you get mindlessly involved in a religion and forget why you're doing it. 
And so what's the point in that? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. Go ahead, just double up on your sacrifices. Do a second one today. It's not going to help you any. And instead of a burnt offering where it all goes up to the Lord, go ahead and just cook it and eat it yourself. It's not going to count for anything anyway. For I did not speak to your fathers nor command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, yes, he did. No, he didn't. He did, but he didn't. Because when he did speak to them concerning sacrifices, it was shadow doctrine speaking to a reality. The point was not the ritual. The point was the reality. And when you lose sight of that, there's no point to the ritual, so you might as well quit. What are you really doing? But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice. Go back and see how many times the term obey, or listen, or heed, or shamer. That's why we have the combination of shamat and shamer that we're looking at in Proverbs. It's all through the, the law. It's all through. And yeah, they're given instructions for this burnt offering and that burnt offering and this sin offering and that trespass offering. And we get lost because we're keeping track of entrails and blood and what gets poured out and what gets uh, offered up and what gets eaten. And and we, we lose the fact that throughout all of it is obey. Obey, 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 time and time again. And the issue is obedience. Obey my voice. And if it comes down to the either or, when push comes to shove, it's obey more than sacrifice. In some cases, there is no sacrifice. David had no sacrifice for his adultery, for his murder. There's no sacrifice for that. But there's obedience, there's mercy, there's confession. And the issue's there. So this is what I command them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I command you and it may be well with you. See, an obedient people will follow the ritual. That's the point. They've got to be an obedient people. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. See, there's the first step to hardness of heart is instead of inclining your ear, Right? inclining or turning or you know uh if the voice is coming from this direction turn your ear that direction so you can hear it better if the voice is coming from that direction don't turn your ear the other direction this speaks to the eagerness they have and uh, then the, the the negligence when they act like oh i didn't hear that oh i didn't yeah yeah you did or you should have so that's the negative volition slide whereby you, you're not so eager to receive the instruction. And it leads to that hardness of heart. They did not obey or incline their ears, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and they went backward and not forward. Guess what? If you're not growing in grace and knowledge, you're going backward. The longer you spend in darkness, the younger you become in the faith. They went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you my servants, the prophets, daily, rising early and sending them. It's like he gets up early every morning and says, all right, this is a day, and here's a prophet, and here's their message. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil, uh, more evil than their fathers. Well, obedience, obedience, obedience. Hear and keep. Hear and keep. It's all about shamat and shamer. We're studying those two verbs right now. Shamat is to hear and shamer is to keep. 
as uh, again, the book of James, don't just be a hearer that deludes themselves, but be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. You've got to hear it and keep it. Repeatedly commanded throughout the law. I'll save some time here. Exodus 15, 26, 19, 5, Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 12. That's significant. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 3. Indeed, this primary message is applicable to all humanity in every dispensation. And that's what we're talking about now because the Son of Man is speaking to the sons of men. The only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, we see the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ in Proverbs 8. And what does he have to say? He has his delight in the sons of men and he speaks to the sons of men in Proverbs chapter 8. And it's about hearing and heeding, hearing and keeping from Shamer, from Shamat and Shamer. So Proverbs 8, verses 32 through 36. In fact, as Jeremiah stands in the gate here and he preaches this message, he is echoing the message of Samuel. He's echoing the message of David, echoing the message of Hosea. Of course, when Hosea gave it, no one listened either. Hosea was sent to the northern kingdom right before they were destroyed. And they should have learned. They should have learned. For Samuel fifteen twenty two. These are significant, particularly for church age saints that think that they can uh, do something external and that accounts when their heart is far from the Lord. So here's Saul. He was commanded to utterly destroy the Amalekites, to kill everything that breathes, men, women, children, animals. If it's breathing, kill it. That was his command. And instead he plunders and he keeps King Agag alive. And uh, so Samuel shows up and says, why have you disobeyed? And uh, Saul said, I did obey. (laughs) Right? And the more you protest, oh, I obeyed, I obeyed, I obeyed, the more it becomes very clear that you didn't. And... uh, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which he sent me, and I did bring back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, see, I can't control what they do. I mean, I obeyed, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See, we only did it so we could sacrifice it. (laughs) That's what he's saying anyway. No, you didn't obey. The sacrifice was back there on the battlefield. They should have put him to death. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. There's Shamat and Shamer. The two verbs we're studying in Proverbs 8. The point is not the ritual, the point is the reality. And if you're denying the reality, don't try to cover it up with some kind of empty ritual. God sees right through that. It doesn't count for anything. So there's, uh, there's uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, and his rebuke to, um, to uh, Saul. I missed it. Where was the verse? That I laugh every time. Uh, verse 14, that's what I laugh. In verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. You know, praise Jesus, brother. I have carried out the command of the Lord. All excited. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? (laughs) All right. You're not that obedient, Saul. I hear these sheep bleeding. 
And the sarcasm there, see, I, I speak fluent sarcasm, I get that. All right, that communicates. What is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And this is when Saul then starts to dither. Uh, likewise, David, David in Psalm 40. See, why am I taking the time to do this? Man. Well, I think it's important. Psalm 40 in verse 6. What's Psalm 40 about? It's a Davidic psalm and um, how God rescued him. Put a new song in his mouth. Verse 4, Asherah, happy is the man who has made the Lord his trust, has not turned to the proud or to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened or a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David not only speaks of himself, but he speaks prophetically of Jesus Christ. And this is what gets quoted in the book of Hebrews so many times. It's about obedience, not sacrifice. Now he came to be a sacrifice, but he wouldn't have qualified to be that sacrifice if he was not obedient. He was the obedient son, the son in whom I'm well pleased, qualified to be the sacrifice. Propitiation, was the father uh, satisfied by the sacrifice? Was he satisfied by the obedience? Okay. He came to do, behold, a body you have prepared for me. And then Psalm 51, as he repents of the adultery with Bathsheba and uh, confesses, he says, you do, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. There was no animal ritual to overcome the adultery and the murder. Mosaic law would put him to death. He was twice over guilty of, of death penalty sins. What, what sacrifices could he bring? Nothing in the Levitical code. And then finally, Hosea, Hosea 6.6. 6 i got to get down to the minor prophets. Although, I mean, doesn't Hosea have 14 chapters? Goodness. We call him a minor prophet. Hosea 6.6. 6. What am I going to do with you? Every parent says this. And here's the Lord saying this to Ephraim. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. You know what Samuel did with Agag after uh, Saul was finished not obeying? Samuel chopped him up into little bits and sent little pieces of Agag all around Israel as a warning. Prophets were vicious. So I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the word of my mouth. And the judgment on you, are like, the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's about chesed. The word loyalty here is chesed, the merciful, loving kindness of God. We're to exhibit that. We're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's your grace and knowledge passage right there. In fact, the Lord used that. He rebuked the uh, the hyperlistic Pharisees twice. With that very verse, 
All right? Read Matthew 9 sometime. Read Matthew 12 sometime. And every time all these legalists are jumping on Jesus or jumping on his disciples saying, they're breaking the law, they're breaking the law. And he says, go and learn what this means. And he cites Hosea 6.6. 6. And then they do it again. He says, you didn't go and learn what that meant. If you would have gone and learned what that meant, you would have not have condemned the innocent. So he rebuked him twice in Matthew 9 and Matthew chapter 12. All right, then we get to the end of the chapter. Verses 27 through 34. Days are coming. Behold, days are coming, saith the Lord. This is a um, statement that appears 15 times in uh, Jeremiah, more than any other uh, prophet, more than any other book of the Bible. It's not even close. I put a pie graph on my Facebook wall the other day delineating the number of times that um, days are coming shows up in Jeremiah compared to everything else in the Bible. There were 15 of them. And they're worth looking at in one sitting, looking at all of them, each one of them individually, and then all of them collectively, seeing the total corpus, the, the total body of days are coming messages. And you'll notice some trends. You'll notice the eschatological features of all of them. You'll notice that they require not only are the days coming, but Jesus himself is coming. All right. Particularly when we study the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And there are so many people that want to take, steal the new covenant from Israel and uh, abscond with it for the church. And when they do that, they fail to recognize 15 times Jeremiah connected days are coming to the second advent of Jesus Christ. And what happens after God judges Israel? And what happens after God restores Israel? What happens when God refines Israel through the tribulation? What happens when God establishes the throne of David in the millennial kingdom? All of those together collectively is the sum total of the days are coming messages in the prophet Jeremiah. And those days are coming. They're still coming. It's not 2016 AD for the, for the church. It is the future for Israel. We don't know when it's going to be. But whenever the church is gone, then God will resume his plan for Israel. I hope it's this year, because I hope the trumpet sounds and we're out of here today. But whatever the case, days are coming and they will not come until they come, right? And and until we're gone, right? So if you ever want to study them out, here's a list of them. There are additional such messages in chapter 9, 16, 19. And, and just because we're writing these down sequentially, don't think that they're chronological. Like I say, the, the book is a, is a scrambled egg approach to the chapters. Um, the first 25 chapters attend, uh, seem to be themed around Judah, and then 26 and following seems to be centered around the Gentile nations, and then there's a conclusion at the end. It's, the book is compiled topically rather than chronologically. But Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 23, two uses there, verse 5 and verse 7. Chapter 30, chapter 31, that's our new covenant chapter. Verses 27, 31, and 38, there's three of them right there in that chapter. 33, 48, 49, 51. Two more in chapter 51. If you want a complete list on that and I don't give you enough time to write it down, then email me and I'll send it to you. You know, the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath, but he has not rejected his people. Don't confuse things. Just because he's disciplining his people doesn't mean he's done with them or that he's forever abandoning them. 
He is not forsaking them. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. He might forsake a generation or he might give a generation over to captivity. He gives 70 years over to captivity, but he's not forsaking his people. He even sends a remnant ahead of them to preserve them when they get there. By the time they arrive in 586 BC, Daniel and his friends are already high government officials. There is already grace in action. There is a place prepared for them when they arrive in their captivity. And Daniel's friends are taken in 605, Ezekiel's taken in 597, and then the nation itself is swept away in 586. But the, uh, the ground crew, the, uh, the advanced party, was already there getting things ready. It says in 729, it says, uh, Cut off your hair and cast it away. Take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now that's a psalm that's composed within this. Um, just focus on the generation of his wrath. Is there rejection? For this generation, yes. But not for all of his people and not forever. All right? Important that we recognize that. Romans 11.1, 1, God has not rejected his people, have, has he? May it never be. May it never be. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Oh my goodness. And then Topheth. Well, here's the good news. I'm out of time. But that's okay, because Topheth is going to be addressed in a longer message in, Je- in Jeremiah 19. All right, so 12 weeks from now, we're going to come back to Topheth. Topheth. What is Topheth? What is the Valley of Ben-Hinnom? So uh, we'll have 15 verses to cover. And the first 15 verses, I always do better with the early verses in a chapter than the final verses of a chapter when I'm running out of time. Topheth will be addressed later. But notice what happens here in uh, the judgment. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but it will be called the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. It's full. So if all the victims are there, just bury them there where they are. That's gruesome. Dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky, for the beasts of the earth. No one will frighten them away. You know, and I will make to cease from the cities of Judah, from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. The land will become a ruin. This is destruction. And it comes upon them in Nebuchadnezzar's conquest. It comes upon them in uh, Titus's conquest. It comes upon them in Antichrist's conquest. However, when Jesus comes, it gets undone. And then once again, they will hear the sound of the bridegroom, the sound of the bride, and all the, he will turn their mourning into rejoicing. Topheth is an interesting message. I'm going to have to close with this. It is uh, linguistically remarkable and theologically significant to observe how the hellish child sacrifice in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, this is the centerpiece for Molech worship. This is the geography where they would butcher their babies. They would offer up their children. Even King Manasseh did this. King Ahaz did this. The hellish child sacrifice in the valley of Ben-Hinnom becomes the hellish prophetic judgment of Gehenna. Gay is valley. And Hinnom becomes Hena when you're taking it from Hebrew into Greek. So Ben-Hinnom becomes Gehenna in Greek. And it's a linguistic quirk because Gehenna is not even a Greek word. Gehenna is a Greek approximate pronunciation of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. All right? becomes the hellish prophetic judgment of Gehenna. When Jesus Christ is, prepare, is preaching about the fires of hell, 
he's preaching about the fires of Gehenna. And the fires of Gehenna are the fires of wrath and judgment. And so you can go through these things. And like I say, we'll have more. It's gruesome. It's nothing you want to study right before lunch. All right. It's gruesome. And yet, on an industrial scale, I believe our nation has outdone anything that's ever been done before in the uh, abortion holocaust of the babies that have been murdered. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. The judgment of Gehenna. So we'll say more on this when we deal more at length with Topheth in, uh, in chapter 19. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness to preach the word in season and out of season, whether they wanted to listen to it or not, to stand in the very gates of the temple so that folks had to walk past him to get in or get out, and uh, the convicting messages that he so faithfully preached. Father, uh, I do thank you for uh, faithful men. I've grown up under them. I've studied under them. I was ordained under a faithful man. Father, my desire is to pass this on to other faithful men. And I thank you that you've blessed us to have a training ministry here and the faithful men here that are being trained. I thank you for the example of Jeremiah. And uh, might we learn from, from these examples. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.